Amen. Let's remain standing for prayer, shall we? Father, what a joy to sing the great hymns of Christmas and remind ourselves of your great plan of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we reach for our Bibles and we turn yet again to these familiar stories of Christmas, would you please just encourage our hearts? Would you quiet us? Would you give us rest and refresh us and renew us? And I pray, Lord, that you would um, teach us from your word, that we would understand, even at a deeper level, the significance of our Lord Jesus putting on flesh, coming in the form of a babe to be our Savior. We commit ourselves to the hearing of the word, and we will count on you to strengthen us to walk in obedience yet this week, that our lights would shine before a lost and a needy world, and that they would see Christ in us this week. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And will you take your Bibles and let's read God's Word yet again as we open up today our sermon, as we unwrap this concept of the humanity of Christ. And I thought it would be good for us each week to read parts of the Christmas story. These weeks are fleeting. And um, I thought this morning it would be good for us to remind ourselves of who the shepherds saw when they went to the manger They saw a genuine, authentic, 100% human baby. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, I'll read again. You follow along, and let's just remind and refresh ourselves with the Christmas account, the account of the incarnation of Christ. And in the same region, Luke 2, beginning with verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Only human baby boys were circumcised. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get our head wrapped around this story, isn't it? As familiar as it is, I was reading this part of the story and reflecting upon this concept of the humanity of Christ. Why would God, in all of his glory, his triunity, why would he delegate to the second member of the Godhead this concept of putting on flesh and becoming a human? And it brought to my mind a story. 
My father always used to have my mother read uh, about a 10 to 12 minute reading of these two young angels in heaven. One was named Pax and the other was named Ariel. This is extra biblical, by the way. That means it's not in the Bible. In our little Bible church that a full Sunday morning would have been this many people in this section right here at Christmas when we gathered somewhere along the line, and if it didn't happen at Christmas time, my dad almost every year would request that my mom read it then at what we had on New Year's Eve, we had what we called a watch night service, and we would gather and eat and play games and have a devotional until midnight, then we would go home. And somewhere in the Christmas season, my dad would have my mother read this reading. I got to thinking about that, and so I texted my brother this memory, and he said, I have that story. It's a little booklet. He copied it and sent it to me, and and it stirred my mind. Of course, I could hear my mother's voice reading the story, but let me share a little bit. It'll help prepare our minds for what we're trying to accomplish today. Uh, the story goes that there's these two little angels. One is Pax, the other is Ariel, and something has gone wrong in heaven. And they are concerned. One of them even thinks that he might have seen a tear on the cheek of Gabriel, the archangel. They've also noticed that there is an absence at the right hand of the Father where the second member, the Lord, would sit. And heaven is strangely quiet and it is strangely different. And the word begins to whisper through the angel ranks that somehow the Father is delegating to the second member of the Godhead that he is going to go and he's willing to go to become, of all things, a human. And part of the story is that Pax and Ariel cannot understand for the life of them why their wonderful, glorious Lord, the second member of the Godhead, would want for any reason to become a human. Reflecting even the scriptural reality that angels long to understand and look into our salvation. Uh, Well, about the time that Pax and Ariel are uh, having this deep discussion about what is wrong in heaven, Gabriel makes a big announcement, calls them by name, and they are thrilled to be standing with the more uh, mature, important angels as these legion ranks of angels assemble for a very important announcement that Gabriel is going to make. And it is that this night is a very special night on earth, and this countless legion of angels are called to go to be a special choir, and Gabriel instructs them as to the song they are to sing, and they break down through the atmosphere, and they appear, and they shock the shepherds that we just read about, and Pax and Ariel are part of the heavenly chorus. And the story kind of ends with the marvel and the wonder of the incarnation, even from the perspective of the angelic host, Why in the world, why in the world would God put on flesh and become a human? Well, it's interesting that um, for us to understand this, we need to lay a little bit of a a logical, uh, it's theological, but a little bit philosophical groundwork this morning And for us to answer this question that Ariel and Pax had and the wonder and marvel of why would God ever want to be one of them, we need to lay a groundwork and we begin with the problem that we have. Humans have a problem. 
speaking of earthlings, speaking of human beings, and if you're going to follow along in the notes, you, you can do that. We're not going to turn a lot in our scripture until towards the end of this message, and, and then I tried to assemble the verses that we're going to search out and uh, bump into, uh, sort of in an order that are easy to find. But let's just begin by laying a groundwork. Um, we have a problem. Christmas is a lot about problem solving. And the problem that we have is, is that as human beings, there is a knowledge gap. There is a knowledge gap. Now, you need to understand that God is so superior to mankind that knowledge of him is beyond anything man can muster in his own intellect or research. Now, you do understand that God is infinitely greater than what we are. God is infinitely larger than us. God is infinite in all of his attributes, and we are finite. And man, in and of himself, cannot, through his own intellect, through his own research, discover God. Now, we bump into God a little bit. Uh, Janet and I did this last night when we were pulling out to head to the Kennedy Center. Um, I don't know if you noticed, about 4.30 last night, there was just an absolutely beautiful sky uh, to the west as the sun was uh, beginning to set, and it was uh, uh, beautiful in color and bouncing off the bottom of the cloud cover, and it was absolutely stunning. And as we noted it to one another, she simply said, the heavens declare. That's all she said, the heavens declare. Well, that's part of Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. We talked about natural revelation a few weeks ago. If you were here when I was talking about a pulpit and a pulpit maker, um, and we were talking about how when we observe creation, we are supposed to ask ourselves the question, how in the world could all of this be? And the fact that there is a creation demands that there is a creator. And as we take that step, God will reveal more truth to us. That's called natural revelation. But you need to understand that man in and of himself will never discover God the way God is intended or or understand God the way God is intended to be understood through natural revelation. And so for us to understand God because of this extreme, actually, it's correct to say it's infinite. There is an infinite knowledge gap between God and mankind. And so for mankind to know God demands special revelation, special revelation. So one of the things you need to understand that Christmas is about God solving a knowledge gap problem that people have with God. We cannot in and of ourselves get to God intellectually or any other way. That leads us to the second part of our problem, which is a moral, spiritual gap. Uh, You need to understand that we're sinners in Adam all die. When Adam sinned, that sin was transmitted to us. And we, as all human beings, are guilty. Some of you don't think that's fair, by the way. How come because Adam sinned, I'm a sinner? Because if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have sinned. I would have just, um, you know, we would have just ate all the good fruit and we would have just loved it and maybe not even ever had kids and it would have just been great. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. If you ever wonder what you would have done in the garden, just read Genesis chapter 3 because that's exactly what you would have done. That's the point of the story. And so 
not only do we have a knowledge gap, but we have a spiritual moral gap. You see, God is infinitely, all of his attributes are infinite. He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely righteous. He's infinitely pure. He cannot look at sin. God, by his own fabric and nature, and he is uncreated, God cannot look at sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. God cannot tolerate sin in all of his holiness and his purity. And that is a reality that humans can do nothing about. And now we're tainted after the fall of Adam and Eve and and being sinners. And I don't have to convince you all that you're sinners. You know that you're sinners. And, And we're tainted and and we cannot get to God. There's nothing that we can do to get to God. And because we're immoral and God is moral and he's spiritual, we're unspiritual. He's pure, we're unpure, impure. He's holy, we're sinners. You just can't do that. And so humanity by self-effort can do nothing to counter the moral depravity or spiritual darkness that exists within us to elevate ourselves to the level required by a holy God. So you need to understand that when we talk about Christmas and we talk about the incarnation and God putting on flesh, you will not understand this at all if you don't understand that there is a gap. And that succinctly stated is a knowledge gap, a morality gap, a spirituality gap. And there's nothing we can do to solve it. The next part of the story that you need to understand to really understand Christmas is that, again, I'm going to start saying some things that aren't really correct, but I don't know how else to say them. God came up with a plan. All right, so let's just think. Can God come up, can God come up with anything new? He cannot. Does, do you agree that God knows everything? I got to be really careful here because this can get really woo. Do you think that God knows everything? Do you think that God ever forgot anything? Do you think that God can think a new thought? Say no. (laughs) Does God know everything he ever knows all the time right now? Yes. Is God infinite in his wisdom? So is everything that God knows absolutely wise and correct? Yes. Can God think a thought that's less than accurate? He cannot. So can God come up with a new plan? He cannot. He always knows everything right now. I can't really explain that. But for our purposes, we know that we have a problem, and the problem is a knowledge and morality and spirituality gap caused by sin. And so therefore, we recognize, well, we really don't recognize until God moves, but we don't know that we have a problem until God solves our problem. And so God is a problem-solving God, and he comes up with a plan. And so the story of Scripture, from front to back, really, people, the story of Scripture is that of God taking action on our behalf to close the gap, or the gap couldn't close. And so God provided a way for restoration and reconciliation 
between himself and mankind. Let's talk for just a second about that word reconciliation. And you can read about it on your own time in Romans chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is teaching there that we are at war with God, that there is a breakdown. And Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the wrath of God is being poured out on sin and sinners. God can't look at sin. So after sin enters the world, people have a problem. They cannot have relationship with God until they are reconciled. And there's nothing we can do to bring about that reconciliation. You might think about it in human terms. You've been in a relationship, a marriage maybe, or a situation with a parent and a child, and it is so broken And one member of the party has so violated the trust of that relationship that the relationship is utterly broken. And there's nothing you can do. And you can't mend it. You can't make a person think a certain way. We have limitations. Well, God was in this broken relationship. And to reconcile man unto himself, what does he do? He turns us and we turn towards each other and come back together. And reconciliation is the uniting and the bringing together of two parties that were once at odds. And in reconciliation, God is the one who seeks us. And through the word of God, our minds are renewed and we can understand that we need God and we need to run to the cross. And so you have to understand that you will never understand Christmas until you understand that there is a problem, but the problem is being solved by a plan and God comes up with the plan and but as we start to think about the plan it brings another question to my mind that I think is a really important question and it is why did God desire to save people from their sin this was Pax and Ariel's problem why would our wonderful Lord care about them who cares about them in the mind of the angel. Well, let's turn in our Bibles uh, to, over to Second Second uh, Peter chapter two, and this is going to strategically place you to turn to our next passage of scripture, which is nearby. Second Peter chapter two. I'm asking a question for us this morning that I want you to be interested in. Why does God provide salvation for people from their sin? He didn't have to do that. It wasn't necessary, was it? Why did he do that? And why would he come up with this plan? Again, not a good come up with it. He always had it. He can't think up a new thought. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Look what, it's, look what Peter says. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. He goes on to further illustrate, but that's all I wanted you to see. If God did not spare angels, but cast them into hell and into dark, gloomy dungeons, how did, what went on in the mind of God? How come when Adam sinned in the beautiful utopian garden of Eden, God didn't cast humans into hell and dark dungeons in chains. What's that all about? 
Hence, we have Pax and Ariel flittering around heaven trying to figure out why God would care about them. It seems so logical to conclude that it was not necessary for God to save sinners. So why did he do it? Well, the closest we can come in the study of our Bibles, letter A, is that the Bible makes it clear that it was out of his love and his kindness that he chose to save people from the consequence of their sinfulness. So we're nearby. Flip to your right over to 1 John chapter 4. Let's use that reference, and I trust that you'll, uh, if you have any interest, follow up in pursuing some of the other references that will help you have an understanding biblically of what we're talking about. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, take a look. Look what it says. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was made clear. It was made open. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin, the atoning sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sin through his son. If we were to take the time to turn to Titus chapter 3, and we don't need to do that, it says very specifically there in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, that it was out of God's love, and it uses the word kindness. Out of his love and his kindness. He saved us. And you know, part of the answer is, why did God pitch angels into hell when they sinned, but humans, he came up with an atoning plan to rescue them and reconcile them. Part of the answer, foundationally and fundamentally, is that wired up in his attributes, in his love and his kindness, is a love and a kindness for human beings. Go figure. Go figure. Secondly, it seems clear from Scripture that once God decided, okay, again, this is inferior work here in your notes, okay? Once God decided, that's really not an accurate way to talk about God. You do understand what I'm saying, right? God didn't decide. He always knew and he always knows and he always knows right now everything that can ever be known. But For our practical purposes of speaking, once God decided that he was going to love and be kind to human beings, it seems that the atonement of Jesus Christ became necessary, necessary as the means to accomplish this goal. So it's, it's hard to get our minds wrapped around this, isn't it? That God chose to create human beings and, and then human beings disobey him. So, so that's the problem. And the problem then is this huge gap. And then, then God comes up with a plan. He, well, he had to know the plan all along because he had to know that the, there was going to be a problem because he knew everything. He can't be surprised. He, there's no such thing as new information to God. And so somehow in the plan, and then, and then we want to say to ourselves, aren't there like, weren't there any number of ways that God could have chosen to save us? 
it seems like you could say that. Like maybe once a month, manna dust would fall. And if you got that manna dust and it was like glitter or something and put it in your hair, that God would forgive you. I don't know. You can think of all kinds of weird and wacky things. I don't think it's too kosher. Or I think it's pretty weird and wacky to think that God would put on flesh. That's extremely weird and wacky. And so if he had all these options, did he have all these options? But it, it seems for our purposes of thinking that when God decided that of his love and his kindness that he would save human beings from the gap that existed that they could not solve themselves, that at that point the atonement became necessary because what we see in Scripture are glimpses of this. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew twenty six thirty nine, for example, you know where that is. That's on the Mount of Olives on the night that our Lord was betrayed, after he had been in the upper room with the disciples, he takes three of them with them and he goes up to pray and he immediately goes into deep prayer. They immediately go into deep sleep. And do you remember what he prayed? Father, Father, if, if it be possible, do what? Remove this cup from me. Take this cup from me. What was the cup? The cup was the suffering of the sinfulness of all the world that would be dumped on him on the cross, credited, imputed to his account, credited to his account as though he sinned those sins. He didn't, but as though he did. Father, if it would be possible, remove this cup from me. Oh, how did he end the prayer? Do you remember how he ended the prayer the way we should end our prayers? But nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. Not mine, but thine, right? And so it's evidently true that God couldn't answer that prayer. I was like, wait a minute, God can answer any prayer he wants. Yeah, but he, it was already set. And so there's evidences. Isaiah 53 is very clear on this, that it was God's will that these sins be laid on him. So if it was God's will, was that some new clever plan that God came up with? I don't think so. It was established that this is the way reconciliation takes place. This is the way we solve the knowledge gap, the spiritual gap, the morality gap is by me coming to you and revealing myself to you through special revelation. And so we're just scratching the the surface here of this study today, but we know God because we can know Christ. And if we could not know Christ, we could not know God. If there were no Jesus, there would be no way to God. So this is Christmas, isn't it? The word getting around heaven. (laughs) Can you imagine what that must have been like? Because angels are not omniscient, all-knowing, And so angels must have been able to point to a certain point in time where they heard for the first time, I guess angels hear for the first time that there was going to be this this change. And for a short three years, the second member of the Godhead would go and become one of them. Those cockroaches. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You wouldn't if you could take some kind of a, of a genetic code in a formula, in a needle, and inject it into your 
seven-year-old boy, at least most days, you would not do that and convert them into a real cockroach and never have your boy again. You wouldn't do that. And, and yet God, in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, left the halls of heaven to encapsulate himself in a womb. By the way, let me comment just a little bit. I think it was in the third service last week. It was the only time I said that Mary's egg was actually participating in this process. Somebody wrote me a pretty long email after that, questioning that, and they had never thought of that before. I suspect that Jesus, you know, had features of Mary, not of Joseph. There was no man involved. We were talking in a little bit in detail about the virgin birth last week, um, that God, through the Holy Spirit, made this life come alive in Mary, and yet Mary's genetic code was involved in the process, and it was absolutely normal, including the completely normal birth. You can ask Mary that someday. She knew. She knows. And you remember the answer to the question, well, it started a little bit of talk, coffee pot talk around here and a couple of my other pastor buddies, and uh, I, I forwarded the note to them and said, here's what people are asking from the pew when you're preaching. And uh, the one guy said, well, what's the answer? <laughs> and he's way smarter than I am. And because uh, it's hard to understand, isn't it? So the answer is what? The answer is the very same answer that God gave Mary through the angel. When Mary wanted to know how will this be, that was procedural. Do, don't ever construe into the Christmas story some kind of grotesque uh, intercourse of the gods or something here. How did it happen? We don't know how it happened. It happened because with God, nothing is impossible. That's the answer that the angel gave Mary to this tricky question. How's this going to happen? Well, the answer is nothing is impossible with God. So there was a moment when life inflamed through the Holy Spirit and this baby gestated in the womb full nine months, fully human. Well, how do we know that he was human? What's the proof? Let's just run through this really quickly. It's not hard to understand. You need to understand that in, especially in eras of time past, there were theological controversies that focused on whether or not Jesus really became human. And there were great debates over that. And so let's just think quickly ourselves, doing a quick Bible study without turning there for uh, evidence. Trust me, they're there, and you can look them up. But let's just say, was Jesus really a human? When the shepherds, we read the Luke 2 account of the shepherds, when they went to the manger, did they see a real living human baby? And if you asked them if it was a real living human baby, the answer was yes. So how do we know he was human? Well, he had a genealogical family tree, didn't he? We know where he came from. We know his genetic line, and we know his kingly line, permission through Joseph, positioned. His position in Joseph, his genetics in Mary, qualified him to be of the line of David. He had a physical birth. Just reference that. And we talked last week in the virgin birth. There was not this mystical, magical uh, 
spiritual cesarean section that just he kind of came through the abdominal wall protecting the perpetual virginity of Mary. That's not true. It was a real birth, a real baby, really crying, real labor. He had a physical birth. He had a normal human, he had a human, he had a normal human growth and development chart. Okay? His mom and dad could take a pencil on the back of the door of the wood shop where Joseph worked, and they could make pencil marks as he grew in stature, Luke 2.52 says. And he grew in wisdom, and he grew in stature with humans, with people. He grew physically, he grew emotionally, he grew mentally. You say, well, how could he do that if he was God? That's the human side of him that was doing that. Remember, there's two parts to Jesus here. There's the all-God part, and there's the all-human part, and the all-human part was all-human, just that he never sinned. But he grew. His physical body experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue. He suffered and died physically as a human being on the cross. In fact, we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but this is getting really close to the part of the plan where it had to work. Okay? He experienced normal human emotion. In John 11, there's emotion there as he hears about the sickness of his friend Lazarus. And they, and they say, Lord, the one you love, Lord, the one you care about is sick. And he ends up weeping at his tomb. He had real human emotion. Jesus called himself a man in John chapter 8. He, he called himself a man. Peter and Paul did the same. The mo- very most familiar one there is 1 Timothy 2.5. You'll remember this verse, won't you? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, fill in the blank, the man, Christ Jesus. Paul calls him a man. He was a mediator man. All right, Interesting. The Apostle John emphasizes his humanity. Scratch off one John there. It's not 1 John. It's just the Gospel of John chapter 1. That's where it talks about, and the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. And he was known. And the Apostle John continued in his epistle in the belief that the, in the humanity of Christ was a necessary belief to determine orthodox truth. The Apostle John made the belief in the humanity of Jesus Christ a necessary test. A necessary test. That if if you don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, you're not one of his followers. That's interesting because one of those groups that was saying it's all mystical, he didn't really come, he wasn't really in the flesh, wasn't God in the flesh. Yes, he did, John said. John said, you better believe that Jesus came in the flesh. So there's a rundown about the proof there, and that's just a part of it. But let's get to the core of the message here for the final few minutes that we have. Okay, what was the purpose in all this? Why, bad theology again, why did God decide to save humans? Well, we we touched on that, that he, he loves us. And it's in his infinite framework of perfect emotion to be kind to us. He cares about us. And that's all imperfection. Why? 
Uh, sure, and then this necessary yet sufficient plan of the atonement of God putting on flesh. Well, the Bible has a variety of reasons that it teaches that Jesus had to have fleshly body and live with us. Let's look at some of them are spiritual realities and some of them are practical realities. Um, I think that your Bible is still open somewhere around First John. But let's just uh, read the notes together on Roman numeral four. What is the purpose of the incarnation? Incarna, carna, flesh or meat in the flesh. What is the purpose of the incarnation that God should break away from heaven and live on earth as human is practically incomprehensible, isn't it? Like the idea of your child becoming a cockroach. You wouldn't entertain that. There's too much disparity, but there's an infinite disparity here between God and humans. Why, 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 along with Pax and Ariel, would he do this? It doesn't make sense. And from my beloved theology professor who is ancient of days right now, but um, that's probably not a good way to say it. Um, He's ancient. He's still living. A precious dear man, Joseph K. Printer, in his Christology notes wrote, And mystery is added to mystery when we consider that God has chosen to remain in this form that would be human form, though glorified throughout all the ages of eternity future. Why would he do that? Though glorified, you know, that's his resurrection body. Uh, um, Evidently, when he first came out of the tomb, he was hard to recognize more so than later, he became recognizable. Um, we have accounts of that in Scripture. And we know that he looked like himself. We know that he still had the, this human body, but a glorified body, a body that could now live for all of eternity. It is a prototype, the Bible teaches, of our resurrection body. It's a wonderful thing to meditate on. And it uh, gives you some detail in 1 Corinthians 15. You can read it there. Uh, in eternity future, we're going to see Jesus as he rules and reigns in the new heaven and on the new earth. You'll be able to see the scars from the plan of the atonement. And we will, I think, through all of eternity future, continue to learn and grow in our understanding of why God, in his, in his perfect framework of emotion, loves us and is kind to us. That will become more clear in eternity future. But what are some of the reasons right now? What is the significance in God's sovereign plan of the ages to save mankind? What is the significance of the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, becoming human? Well, we're right. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you're nearby, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And we'll pick up a few verses right here. This will not take long, but you'll be able to see, first of all, to be our example. To be our example. Look what it says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to you, excuse me, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Uh, the example is how to suffer, so that you might follow in his steps. Pretty hard to follow in the steps of a ghost. Pretty hard to follow in the steps of a mythical, metaphoric personage. Much easier to observe a life lived. 
Much easier to have the account of a life that was real and learn how to follow in those steps. Look what it says in verse 22. He committed no sin. All right? He was absolutely sinless. That raises the question, in his humanity, could he have sinned? And that's a huge debate. I don't believe that he could have. He always chose to do the right thing. And with his union with deity, it would have been impossible for him to make a bad decision. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Uh, But that raised another question in your mind just now, didn't it? Then if you couldn't sin, how could temptation be real, Pastor Van? Huh? Huh? All right, let me put it on you. When do you feel temptation the most? When you succumb or when you resist? You don't know the full test of temptation because we bail out way before we reach the limits. And so the answer is, in his perfection, he felt the full weight of temptation and the body desiring whatever it was. We know for sure he was starving and wanted to eat food, and he resisted. When do you feel it the most? When you finally stick that peanut butter sandwich in your mouth and wash it down with some Mountain Dew? No, when you don't allow yourself to eat it at all. Right? So there you go. We kind of settled that one in a hurry, didn't we? Big books are written about that too. To be our example for living. That's what we're talking about. I want, to, I want you to see this because there's a very important verses here. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Now verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You should pay me for a whole year of marriage counseling just for reading that verse to you. There it is. You don't know how to get along with one another? You follow Jesus, your model, who when he was reviled, he did not revile aback. When he was treated with injustice, he did not fight back, but he entrusted himself, who? To the one who would mete out perfect justice. He will wait on him. That's hard to do. That's so hard to do. And there's our model, and thankfully, we don't have to muster up the strength to do that in our own flesh, which would be impossible. Peter goes on, and let's read it, because it goes right to our next point. When he was reviled, read 23 again. Uh, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself, verse 24, Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his human body of flesh on the tree that we might die to sin. The answer to being able to live like Christ is at the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By now, Peter's going to quote Isaiah now, by his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So as we go to the cross and as God begins to do this work of regeneration and reconciliation in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we absolutely do have the ability to follow the pattern of Christ. Incredible. Secondly, which we've already read, is to become the sacrifice for sin. 
It's to become the sacrifice for sin. I thought that very succinctly, Charles Ryrie in his basic theology text set us up with a good paragraph. You see, without the incarnation, we would have no savior. Sin requires death for its payment. But God does not die. So the savior must be human in order to be able to die. But the death of an ordinary man would not pay for sin eternally, so the Savior must also be God. We must have a God-man Savior, and we do in our Lord. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, but we'll wait to get there next spring. Let me try to explain a little bit what he just said. Why did God put on flesh? He put on flesh because... Because God himself, in all of his perfect justice, you know that he's infinitely just. He's infinitely just. And his justice demands infinite payment for sin. All right? And the rule that God has, which is a perfect rule because God can't have imperfect rules. And he didn't change the rules because God can't change. So the rule that has always existed is that wherever there's sin, there will be death. The rule existed before Adam and Eve. That's why God warned him about it. He warned him about the rule. There is a rule that exists that wherever there's sin, there's death. All right? And so we have a problem because we can suffer for our own sin, but we can never suffer enough for our own sin to please and appease the wrath of a holy God. Can't do it. So that's why Hell is, or the lake of fire is for eternity because for all of eternity, you'll pay the price for your own sin if somebody doesn't do it for you because in our own human capacity, we can never complete the payment for sin. That's how bad sin is. Our problem is we think sin ain't so bad. In fact, sometimes we kind of think sin's kind of fun and it is for a season, but it has eternal condemnation ramifications. So, Backing up a little bit, make another run for this. God has a rule. Well, let's back up even farther. There's a gap. We can't solve the gap. God wants to solve the gap because he's kind and loving. He has a rule. The rule is wherever there's sin, there's death. For human beings to die for their own sin, they could just have to go on dying and they never die enough to pay for the sin. That's how horrific it is in the eyes of God. So God, out of his love and his kindness, elects for the second member of the Godhead, we call him Jesus Christ, of the triunity, the second member of the Godhead was delegated with the responsibility to go to earth, to put on flesh, to be 100% God, and to be 100% human because in his humanity, he could die on the cross. So when we sing or we talk about God rejecting God or God turning his back on God... It is because the sin of the world was put on Christ on the cross and God cannot look at sin. And in his humanity, Jesus paid the penalty of death 
on the cross for our sin. Now, you say, well, why couldn't another man just have done that? Because it wasn't good enough. It's not a human doesn't have what it takes. In the mind of God, because Jesus was all human and all God, he had the capacity to heap the sins of all the world upon him representatively, imputed onto him all the sins of the world. And because he was the God-man, he could do this. He had the capacity to do this. No normal human being had the capacity to do this. Now, I want to clarify something that I've said in the past that I think could be taken wrong. You know, I've talked about, and I talked about it when I talked about the the guys who duct tape a little old lady and hit her in the head with a hammer, and I decided that's probably not a good illustration to use with boys and girls in the audience, but I just did it again. But I was trying to illustrate the horrific deeds that humans can do to other humans, and that when Jesus died on the cross... All of the sinfulness, all of the rapes, all of the sexual immorality, all of the cursing and swearing, all of the pride and arrogance, all of the selfishness, all of the the hateful things, the envy and the strife, and all of that was put on Christ as though he did it. But what I want to make clear is, make sure you understand that in the mind of God, God knows that Jesus never did that. So when Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us, it was a representation that was in the mind of God the judge. He made Jesus responsible for it as though he had done it, even though he knew he hadn't done it. And I think sometimes I've made it sound like from the pulpit that, that Jesus was it was as though he, he did it. He never did those sins. In the same way, when you go to the cross and you put down your sin there and Jesus pays the penalty for your sin, it doesn't stop there. Our sin is imputed, given over, transferred to him, and his righteousness is imputed to us. And in the mind of God, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account as though we kept the law. And in the same manner, God never gets fooled. He knows we didn't really keep the law. But he credits it to our account, the role and goodness and righteousness of Christ, as though we did keep the law. You follow me? And so for God to put on flesh became necessary, and it was sufficient, it was complete. He could, in a six-hour window on a Friday afternoon, bear up under the sin of the whole world and satisfactorily pay the price for sin that God, the infinitely just judge, demanded. And he could only do that because he was a perfect human and he was all God. That's the best I can explain it. Going along with this in 1 John, and we'll wrap up very rapidly now, in 1 John 3, verse 8, Another reason that he came, he says, look at this, 1 John 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. By the way, you better stop and think about that for a minute. Do you make it a practice to sin? Is it part of what you do? I mean, when people describe you, this is what I do. I just sin all the time. John says, if you make it your practice, this is characteristic of your life. You're of the devil. You're of the devil. That ought to scare the gajibis out of you, whatever they are. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think that's twofold. First of all, I think that it destroys the work of the devil in a spiritual sense, that the transaction that took place on the cross through the substitutionary death of Christ, where he carries our sin and he gives us his righteousness, it shatters the ability of the devil to have victory over us from then on. But I think, why did he have to do it by becoming flesh in the body? Evidently, it has to do with the fact that the realm of Satan is a physical realm. I know that Satan is spiritual, but... Satan's kingdom is a physical kingdom in a lot of ways. He has a spiritual realm, but in an unseen realm. But he's the prince in the power of the air and of this world. And it's a physical world. And Christ entered the physical world to break the the death grip of Satan like no one else could do. He did it to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Read these verses devotionally this week. To be our representative in obedience, Romans 5. You know, it says in Romans 5 that uh, by one man's obedience, uh, let me just read it a minute and we're almost done here. Romans 5, 18, look what it says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen, This is what this is. This is representation. If you're interested in theology, uh, some theologians call this a concept of federal headship. Let's go back to Melchizedek this Christmas real quick here. Before we go home, let me hold you just another minute and let's talk about Melchizedek. You'll understand. Remember Melchizedek from Hebrews? You remember what the writer of Hebrews was arguing to the reader, to the recipients? As to when Abraham encountered Melchizedek out on the plain, he bowed to him, he paid tithes to him, and that in Abraham's loins, semitically in him, was Aaron, the priest. He wasn't born yet. It was his great-great-grandfather. But it was as though he were there. And so when Abraham bowed down to Melchizedek, it was as though Aaron in his father's loins bowed down to Melchizedek. And if Abraham bowed down to Melchizedek and Aaron bowed down to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Jesus is of Melchizedek. Therefore, Jesus is greater than Abraham there. Now you understand the whole book of Hebrews. It was representative, right? So in Adam, all die. We were in Adam We would have done exactly what he did, but we were represented in Adam as as our great-great-grandfather. We were going to spring from his loins in a a, a representative way, not the physical way. Then Jesus, in his obedience, represents a righteous life that can be lived because he did it. Adam did this, and it suffered a consequence to all mankind. Jesus does this, and we can have relief from that penalty of sin. And so you have another reason. The first Adam, Paul calls Adam in Genesis, and Jesus in Romans, you know what he calls him? The second Adam. The second Adam. We had to do that in the flesh to be our representative in obedience to fulfill the promise made to David in the Davidic covenant that a real 
king would sit on a throne who had the genetic DNA of David himself, and that's our King Jesus during the thousand-year reign of the millennium in a literal kingdom, a literal throne, in a literal place, and it will be fulfilled. So taking this home with us, at the least, whether you understood, and I don't even know if I understood my own message this morning, there's some heavy stuff we bumped into here. At the least, like the shepherds that we read about when we opened the story, don't we run and find him and worship? It seems to me the wonder and marvel of the incarnation leads to worship. Yesterday morning, do you remember yesterday morning? It was a nasty morning, rainy and wet and cold. It was a perfect morning to get up and just leave your John Deere fuzzy pajama bottoms and your hoodie sweatshirt on and drink a cup of coffee and just stay away from everybody. And I dragged the whole choir down here yesterday morning for three hours and the orchestra. Why? Because we're singing about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's worthy. It's worthy. It's worthy getting cleaned up and giving up your own comfort to join your voices and to put the instruments in tune so that we can raise our voices together and we can ponder as we wander. Did I say that in this service already or the last service? He's worthy of our worship. Number two, it's more than just Christmas time, isn't it? It's an everyday, an everyday celebration I think that as we marvel and as we learn about the ramifications of the, of the incarnation, uh, for example, those first Peter verses, I teased that they had a whole year of marriage counseling right there. But maybe part of the problem with my marriage is that I'm not thinking enough about the incarnation of Christ and how he lived and how I reflect his life and that he was put there as a model for me. Every day, the incarnation influences me. Ultimately, the ultimate gift is Jesus, isn't it? The ultimate gift, Jesus is enough, isn't he? So on Christmas morning, when the kids come running down to the tree, wherever you put your presents, and there's no presents, and you just say, kids, PV said Jesus was enough. That ain't going to fly, is it? It's not going to fly. So you go and enjoy your presence. And you enjoy your traditions. But please, please, please understand that all of that stuff really doesn't have much to do with anything. That the greatest gift that was ever given was given in Bethlehem many, many years ago when God, the second member of the Godhead, to the puzzlement of all the angels put on flesh to accomplish all of this for us. And Jesus was God. Jesus was God. And he put on flesh. Incredible, isn't it? Let's stand and let's bow before the Lord, okay? Father, Would you please humble our hearts and open our minds to the reality of the incarnation of Christ? That he's worthy of our worship. That you had a plan for him 
It's hard for us to understand this trinity and these roles that are played. And we recognize the headship of the Father. But Lord, this reality that Christ put on flesh, particularly to carry our sin to the cross, would you please grow us in our understanding? If there's anyone here today who has not run to the cross and showered in the blood of Christ, would you please open their eyes to these truths today, I pray. Give us a worship-filled Christmas and help us to ponder and let our lives be impacted by the incarnation of Christ that a watching world would see a difference in us because Christ is our model. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, amen. God bless you as you go. Um, The chairs stay down. The chairs do not get stacked. Thank you.